This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. My guest today is my friend, Jason Gardner. Jason is a retired SEAL Team Master Chief who had experience back in Somalia as a sniper and multiple deployments around the globe. He is now working with Echelon Front, that's Jocko Willinks and Leif Babin's organization. And you can find him at jason.n.gardner on Instagram. We recorded this long before Ironclad started making these podcasts what they are today. So we're going to get this out there and then I will have Jason back on to talk more about what's going on in the world today. So let's get this one out there, get to know Jason, and then I'll have him back on on a future podcast. Without further ado, Jason Gardner. Jason Gardner, it is so nice Jack. to be here with you. And yeah. uh, so uh, I love podcasts because it forces us to turn off our phones and just have a conversation. Yeah. And not a five minute conversation, not a two minute conversation, not a quick little bro hug and passing. Uh, but we get to catch up, which is awesome. So I'm yep. super fired up. So uh, for those of you listening, I have Jason Gardner on and uh, he was a, a SEAL Master Chief and is now working at Echelon Front, which is uh, Jocko Willink's and Leif Babin's deal. And let's get into all of it. So uh, let's just start off at the beginning because I want to know where you came from. Like, where did this all start? We got to know each other later on. So uh, where did you grow up? San Clemente, California. No way. Okay. Basically, my, my dad was a Marine, and uh, we came out to the West Coast in 73. Um, he was stationed at the air station up, up in El Toro, but eventually they bought a house in San Clemente, and so that's where I grew up. And my dad managed his career real well. Every time he would get orders back to the East Coast, he would volunteer for an unaccompanied tour over in Okinawa. And so he would go do that. So you guys stayed. That We would stay, and yeah. then he would get his choice of orders after that and would be able to bounce between the Marine Corps bases in Southern California nice. until it happened again. Then he would volunteer to go again. So he did two of those as I was growing up, which isn't, it's not too bad. Yeah. Um, and uh, then finally, and this was after I joined the SEAL teams, he, he got orders he couldn't get out of, and he's like, yeah, I'm going to retire. <laughs> nice. And what did, he, what did he do in the Corps? He was a JAG officer. Oh, no way. Yeah. No kidding. That's yeah. wild. How many years did he do? 23, I think. 23. Yeah. No way. And then did you, uh, did you know you were going to go into the military at an early age, or did Still, you decide that later in high school? No. Work? I made that decision, I think I was like seven years old, and I can remember the moment because we were driving somewhere it was raining really hard that day i was looking out the window and i was really torn because i was thinking about uh hey i want to become a scientist because i love the outdoors and nature and all this so maybe i'm going to become you know like an, a, somebody working in a zoo or an ecologist or something like that and then uh but i also had this heavy draw to to be in the military yeah and at that moment i said that science stuff is going to wait i'm going to do the military first and so that was just my goal and then then you know my target adjusted and for a long time it was going to be that that i was going to be a marine yeah and uh uh in high school i was doing this uh, uh martial art called kajikempo and it, it's kind of a hybrid style of several different uh martial arts anyway and one of my instructors was just a team guy in vietnam 
No kidding. And my parents were like, hey, do you know that your instructor Turner is, was a team guy in Vietnam? And, and I was like, you know, a SEAL. And I, I had no idea, you know, back in the 80s, no one had any idea what SEALs were. I, and I, it sounded like some kind of mammal program right. or something like that. And, yeah. and they were really impressed. So I started doing my research and I'm like, oh, okay, this, this is exactly what I want to do, you know. Because growing up on the beach, swam and played water polo, being a part of the maritime force yeah. made the most sense. So I just locked into that and nice. uh, went straight out of high school. I, I didn't have a, a die fair right. contract. So I took a gamble and, and went in and just chose gunner's mate because I saw that nice. it was a source rating. Yeah. And uh, Well, you made the right decision because the die fair program was really a sham. Yeah. Like when I got to boot camp, I did the dive fair. You sign on for six years. And when I got to boot camp, I found out, at least when I went through, that uh, everybody got a chance to try out. <laughs> and the dive fair program, all it did was add two years to your contract to give you the guarantee to try out. But yeah. then you had that anyway. So, uh, yeah, so it all, all worked out. Yeah, the, you did the, uh, uh, the source rating thing, which changed I mean, not that long ago. No. Um, but uh, boot camp and then gunner's mate school and then right to buds yep nice what class was it 155 dang man that's awesome that's great what year was that 80 we graduated in december 88 no way okay and then you went to team five Mm -hmm. okay no i was at team five for six seven years went over to buds uh wasn't advanced doing the advanced training thing which really wasn't broke off in its own command it was just like a detachment from buds so right. i was doing dive maintenance dive soup and uh the schools right the advanced applied explosives okay course is where i generated then i separated but uh, before that so i found out about you uh, before i came in the navy and uh-huh. uh on discovery was it discovery channel yeah that discovery channel special uh yep. this, i think silent option was what it was called yeah that was awesome because like yeah. you said there was hardly anything uh-huh. out there and so for a guy like me who was just a sponge like reading everything i possibly could which there wasn't that much but then discovery channel comes out with this thing and then there's this guy who ends up being you uh talking about this sniper shot in mogadishu uh-huh. and uh that was awesome i mean for, like, for all of us coming in like that was huge and then we get to buds and then you we, we hear about you and then uh by the time i got to team five i think you had you were on your you, you got out and i got to team five in 97. Oh, no, that's right when I left Team 5 and went over to Bud's. Okay. So you yeah. went there for a couple of years. Yep. Um, and uh, we'll talk about, let's uh, go back to Mogadishu. Yeah. So is that second platoon, third platoon? Uh, that would have been almost, man, what was that? I think that was. Uh, so it's 93, so It was like my fourth right? platoon. Because here's what happened. Um, my second platoon, we were on deployment. And a couple of guys in the platoon relieving us were killed in a car accident. Oh, jeez. So they're like, hey, does anybody want to stay here for another, de- just stay on deployment? Which you can't do. I had to go back to the States. But Turn I around stayed, reset the clock or something? Yeah. I went back for a week and then redeployed with uh, my new platoon and then did another. Because I was a single guy. I, I just wanted to be on the road and deployed all the time. Yeah. So it worked out. So. And you're already a sniper at this point? No, well, I'd been through the sniper course, but I didn't graduate. Okay. And so after I got back um, from those deployments, I went back to the course and got my qual and got my sniper instructor qual. Nice. And then 
this opportunity uh, to get into that platoon that would go into Mogadishu. Amazing. Popped up. And were you guys, I, were you guys in a, uh, like an ARG or yeah, something like that? Yeah, I was in ARG Alpha. So, uh, so that's when you're on a boat for everyone listening. Yeah. Um, and the funny thing about those deployments in the 90s is they weren't very sought after because you were on a ship. Right. Um, but it was your best chance to operate. Okay. And so, you know, there were just these like random flashes in the pan, but the, the, the ships are always going to go to where the problems are. And I did two of those ARG alphas. Yeah. Both of them, the first one took us to the first Gulf war. And then that second one, which was, I had two platoons in between that, you know, over to Somalia, no kidding. which was great. And we were on the same ship, the, the USS Ogden LPD five. I was in the same exact space that I was on my last deployment. No way. Yeah. No way. So it went, so going back to Gulf War then, uh, what did you guys do for that? Did... We boarded some tankers okay. and, uh, we had some, we had some other operations. We were going to go in and do some direct actions on some of the, uh, islands out there in the Gulf uh-huh. that the, uh, Iraqis had, uh, anti-aircraft batteries on. And, uh, Every time we would get ready to go do them, they would do a recon flight and they're like, yeah, they all surrendered or abandoned the (laughs) island. And so we had like three or four ops like that. And then they just, they kept surrendering. So we didn't do any of those. So for the real world aspect of it, it was just the tanker boardings. Got it. Yeah. And back then that was, I mean, that was something because there were flashpoints since Vietnam. You had flashpoints for for the army. They had Desert One, then Uh we had Grenada, then we had Panama and then Gulf War and then Mogadishu. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're going in with a little bit of experience. You have uh, experience in platoons, experience Mm -hmm. in Gulf War, at least seeing how that that works. Yeah. Uh, And then now you're on an ARG again. Somalia kicks off. And this is before or after uh, uh, Black Hawk Down? Like two years after. Two years after. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we were there to pull the UN out of Mogadishu. They they, they were done. They were quitting the mission, which which is why it wound up being so crazy because they kind of had like an equilibrium there, right? But then the UN controlled the port and they controlled the airstrip. And while we were there, they just abandoned the airstrip and we were, you know, this was a Marine Corps operation and we were just attached to them along the coastline there. So we, we were probably a hundred meters from the water to the front edge. And we were there to cover the UN, the UN left. And then two days later, we left straight out to sea. Okay. And, uh, um, when the UN left, that's when stuff just went bananas. Really? Yeah, because they, they had a bunch of security with them while they were there, or they were well, they maintaining the peace they, somehow. They controlled the entire runway, and they had some other bases. And then okay. just in the middle of the night, they left them all. And then, so now you've got a, a situation where people are really poor, and they just left everything. So all of their buildings, all their water, a lot of their food. Mm-hmm. So initially they left, then then all the people realized that they were gone and started like getting in there and looting buildings and you know to take it back to their own homes and building materials and food and stuff like that and then uh the clans kind of became aware of it yeah so they came over and i saw one thing where you know it was just like that black hawk down movie where there was a big crowd of people yeah tearing through stuff grabbing it and they just pulled up in a jeep with uh you know at the 51 cal in the back and leveled it at the crowd and just started shooting them no way and that was that was a ways away and it wasn't that wasn't anything we could deal with under our rules of engagement but 
there were two major clans there and one clan owned the south end of the runway kind of took over that whole section the other clan owned the other end of the runway and you can't own half of a runway so the one clan came down tried to push the other clan out they had a big firefight essentially right in front of us and uh they couldn't get done but so they backed off but now the guys that owned the south end of the runway for some reason felt like we were on the side of this other clan uh-huh. and they started shooting at us okay uh you know rocket propelled grenades there was a recoilless rifle round fired at us and and, and lots of small arms fire no way so, so now now it's within rules of engagement to uh yeah take and it, but, but it's just you know the urban environment it's super difficult to tell when you get shot at you hear that crack yeah like, and you're like okay where'd great from? where'd that come from and oh, we're yeah. looking across the runway and then there's a big hill that goes up with buildings all over it and you're just staring at them all hoping to catch whoever's shooting at you and they're smart they're not standing out in the open shooting there you know maybe like three feet back from a window or shoot from an alleyway and then move yeah and so you know that was going on and we were trying to find someone to return fire with and and it wasn't happening and then we caught like seven we saw seven guys about an hour later patrolling and there was three of them had rocket propelled grenades there was a guy with a a a pkm which is their version of rm60 it's a big belt fed machine gun and then a couple of guys with ak-47s and we saw them patrolling through just the south end of the runway and at this point we hadn't been shot at in like let's say 30 30 minutes yeah so everything like the returning fire that had kind of dropped off and we're like okay let's just see what they're gonna do yeah and they walked out and there was a spot that they occupied that was kind of like a a a checkpoint coming into that camp that had been abandoned and it had two sandbag positions where the sentries would stand and so they were all standing there pointing right at us and uh there was one guy in charge and ironically he's got this gray army shirt on right and he's got a rocket propelled grenade or 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 an rpg and he's he's pointing at his guys placing them in these security positions and then he's looking at us through the site and uh we're like okay they're getting ready to go hot and our oic had calmed down a little bit and he's like well let's wait and see what they do and then I don't know if you remember Monty Tree Size, but he was our yeah. LPO and he was super calm. And he's like, "Hey, sir, he's he's preparing to shoot at us. We need to return fire." And then, okay, your gardener shoot. Well, I've got a really kind of a janky shooting position. I had the the rifle propped up on these sandbags. The guy spotting for me wasn't a sniper because they'd split me and the other <laughs> sniper up. Yeah. He's just to my left with his binos on the sandbags ready to spot for me. And so my heart's going 100 miles a minute. I've never shot at a person before. Yeah. And it's it's a 500-yard shot, so that's throwing me off a little bit. I shoot... 300 wind mag? 50 cal. We didn't have 300 wind mags yet. Okay. And it was the old 50 cal where you had to pull the, the whole bolt out, knock out oh. the brass, put a new round in, and put it in and close it and what's more it it had the potential a lot of times it would just bind up and and i literally later on while we were there had to kick it open 
Um, not during this little skirmish, yeah. though. So I shoot, and I, it felt terrible. And so I thought, you know, hey, you got a correction. I look over at my spotter, and he's dropped the binos, and, and the back blast from the 50 just filled oh. his eyes full of sand, oh. right? Because the, yeah. the, the 50 cal's got that muzzle break uh-huh. on the front. And uh, Bonnie was over my shoulder, and he's looking, and he, he says, you, yeah, you missed, but because he can still see the guy moving around, but he can't give me a correction. So no one's got a correction for me. Now I'm doubting my my uh, go my data on previous engagements, like where I dialed my rifle in. Uh-huh. Uh, and I reload, get back up on the rifle, look at the guy, and he's kind of looking around bewildered because he's like, wow, that thing came really <laughs> close to me. What's going on? And so I just... I tightened up my shooting position. I got my elbows rested on the sandbags. I controlled my breathing, you know, let half a breath out, squeeze, squeeze, boom, surprise break, and send it. Now I'm in the process of reloading the gun, and I'm shouting to the guys with me because our radio men now had grabbed a the binos and had moved a little bit further down the sandbag so we wouldn't get hit by the muzzle, yeah. the back blast. And he's looking through the the binos and he's like oh my god and i'm like hey where did i hit and he goes gosh darn it and i'm thinking he's gonna say you're you're a mile off you missed so far i don't even know what correction to give you and i hit him i go what where did i hit and he goes he is down (laughs) oh that had to hurt he wasn't even hearing me the whole time so i'm like okay dope is good dang now we're starting to take pretty steady fire because the the uh one of the the PKM gunner is on the sandbags and he's shooting in our position. He's all his rounds are high, so I reload, swing over. I can see this huge muzzle flash coming from the sandbags. I can't oh, wow. see the gunner, and so I just put my crosshairs in the middle of the muzzle flash, squeeze that round off, um, reload again pop back up and there's the sandbags are there. I can't see the gunner, but the, the, the PKM is spilled over the front of the sandbags. There's a big divot in the sandbags and he's off to the side and he's just, he's a wreck. His, his guts have come out of him. Like, you know, those snakes out of the cans and some people ran up and grabbed him and it looked like he died like, you know, two seconds after cause he was basically almost looked cut in half. Wow. Um, and then a jeep showed up with a guy in the back with the big the 51 cal yeah and they were that was a much 50 cals are serious it's a serious muzzle you know report when it's coming over you and pushed over to them and and at this point i'm like oh my gosh we grabbed the tiger by the tail i'm the only one shooting you know and there's some marine positions next to us like there's a tow missile just down from us but we got they were so strict when they briefed the rules of engagement that i think a lot of guys were afraid yeah you know and there there no one was used to this back in the 90s so it was a pretty big deal if you were Mm -hmm. you know taking lives and uh um so i rush a shot at at the gunner and it winds up apparently hitting the sidewall of the Jeep just above the rear tire. 
you know, below his feet yeah. or he was in the back of the Jeep. So I hit the Jeep and then the Jeep took off. Then they launched a, they had an art, a rocket propelled grenade come at us, which I just heard someone shout everybody down. We all sucked mud. It sounded like a jet flying yeah. right over the top of us. And then when it didn't hit anything, it just air burst uh, off behind us a couple hundred yards. And then when we popped back up, they were now doing a peel back into some buildings to take cover. Okay. And so I shot a couple times at them running during the their peel and, and missed because it, there, there's not enough lead that you can put into a scope to hit someone that's running basically what we call full value. And that means they're yeah. running across. So I was tracking. I saw the building that they had just run behind and um, Monty... You know, I developed a big range card before I went in there because I knew exactly where we were going to be. So we looked at the imagery in the map, had a range card. And Monty goes, hey, that building is uh, 700 yards away. So I adjusted my dope. Yeah. Uh, and that means I, I dialed the elevation up on my scope for anybody who's wondering. I'm going to work hard on not killing everyone with the military terminology. <laughs> they all peel behind the building. And so I'm just watching the corner of this building. And... This guy steps out with a rocket, uh, an RPG on his shoulder, and my my uh, um, my crosshairs are on his pelvis. So I start to load the trigger. He takes a knee, and so my crosshairs are right on his sternum when the the shock shot broke. And the spotter said that you know we're shooting these uh, Mark Two Eleven rounds, the Ralphus multi-purpose, oh, which is wow. explosive. And he's like, I saw the round flash when it hit him because it hit the sternum. You know, enough bone was enough to make it explode right there, oh, and he's just down. Brutal. Yeah, that's amazing. And those things are not the most accurate of rounds compared to the match that would come later. No, yeah, they're so not. It's it, it can be like a, a two-minute round. So what that means to people is if you're holding the gun in a vice at, um, you know, 500 yards, you could hit anywhere inside a 10-inch circle. Yeah, and plus the plus the minute of angle of the actual weapon. plus the, Yeah, and all that. So that's in a add, perfect world in mm -hmm. a vacuum, and you add all the other air in there, it's not... It's not the best. Yep. So you can do everything perfect and you'll and you can still miss mm -hmm. at no fault of your own. Just because rifle and round, when you add those minutes of angle together, you're off by 10, 15 feet. Here's the thing though. I still preferred it to the match grade rounds because really? typically when you're shooting a 50 cal, you're shooting at things and not people. You know, like you're trying to wreck yeah. a vehicle. Right. They always told us it was an area weapon. It was for the for the yeah. aircraft, for the car, for whatever, uh -huh. whatever else. And so the the Mark II eleven the, the Ralphus was was a, seemed like a better tool to apply that to. Got it. Now I'm sure if there was a situation where you're like, hey, we just need the 50 because it's really windy and they're going to be longer shots in the match grade rounds to make more sense. But that's and what rifle was it? So this is before the McMillan like a, that we it had. Was a McMillan. So it was a McMillan, but just an earlier one. Earlier version oh, where you took. You had the, to take the bolt all, all the way, the way out. out. Interesting. Yep. The time I got there, you didn't have to take it all the way out. But oftentimes, if you left that brass in there for too long, what it expands and could get, you have to pry that thing out anyway. But yeah, uh, so you had an earlier version and with a Leopold scope on there at the time, Mark Four. Yeah, it was a Leopold or something like that. Mm -hmm. oh, that is, that is wild. So back when you did that, that was a big deal. Like nobody, yeah. like we are not for people these days after September 11th. Like it becomes a little more normal. But back when you did that, like no one had done that really 
since, well, there's a couple flashpoints, but really since Vietnam, no one has been yeah. doing that sort of thing. So for guys like me coming in that sees the, the, the silent option discovery channel thing and see the way that, uh, that you described it. And then, um, like you were the, the guy that now had real world combat experience, not just combat experience, not just running around, ducking some bullets, taking some corners, but real world sniper experience. Yeah. And, uh, that was a huge deal. Yeah. Um, and so I remember you walking, coming to team five. So you were probably at the, doing the advanced training stuff and, you know, coming across the grinder and people would be like, Oh, that's him. You know, <laughs> like that, that sort of thing. Uh, so when you come back from that, what, uh, did you, did we have a good debrief wait, wait for you to disseminate information about what happened and what happened with the scope and the weapon and all that sort of thing? Lessons yeah, learned? I mean, they had me go on like a little speaking tour Okay, and, uh, um, I was really involved with, with the sniper course and, and some of the guys running that. And so, you know, we started working on that and working at getting different weapons. One of the big, there was a bunch of shots that I could have taken after dark. Okay. And the problem was, is the way our night vision. Did you have a KN 250? KN 200. 200. Okay. And it would have worked if we had a variable power scope, but when you're looking at it through a fixed power, whatever it was, 12 or 16, it just, no night vision is going to work really good. But when you can turn the power down, uh, okay. it, it just works better. And yeah, that would have been. So you brought that back. We need better night capability. Well, yeah. And people understood that. And so that was something that they started working on. And I think we kind of found out that it works better on a variable power scope a little okay. bit by accident when later on we went to the night four scopes yeah. that were five by five to 22. Mm -hmm. um, and you're like, hey, when it's down on five power, it works great. And then the, the three by five to 15s, which were, they're never great scope and it works even better on three power. Yeah. And we got obviously technology kind of increased. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially after September 11th, we had some, so, so much better stuff that gave us incredible capability. Let's get two found. I don't remember the 200, but I remember the 250 and it remember being very grainy and like it was, mm -hmm. it was, yeah, it, it definitely was not the greatest. <laughs> and so, you know, and another interesting thing on that is like, I remember We'd have like three sets of night vision per platoon. And the point man, the rear security, and the, the PL had it. They never real we never wore it because we weren't wearing helmets ever. I mean, right. we'd be appalled if someone was like, <laughs> hey, you need to start patrolling around with helmets on. Yeah. And then when we got enough night vision for everybody, it still took us like a year and a half to get everybody to actually wear it because people hate chains so much. Yeah. And I, I can remember <laughs> lane grading for a platoon out at nyland and half the guys had their their night vision up on their helmets yeah i'm like what are you doing and they're like oh we're, we're patrolling 50 50 and what what does that mean 50 percent <laughs> with it on and it was all the young guys that ha were doing the right thing oh, really? and had it on and all the older guys that you know and people just hate change yeah you know it's, yeah and so that that had it up and like get that stuff down and it still took a little while for everyone to recognize like yeah it's a good idea for me to be able to see, <laughs> see at in night the dark i know it's so <laughs> tough yeah we didn't have them even at at september 11th we didn't have them but then mm -hmm. once that was once that deployment on september 11th was over uh then we came back and then every, those golden connex boxes opened and all of a sudden now we have helmets now we have nods now yeah. we're, now we're moving forward here but uh that's it so you come back from that you go on to, you're speaking toward the different teams, different yeah. groups, do that sort of thing, pass along some Just of those. Just basically, left. it was, it was, 
it was restricted to the West Coast. Okay. Yeah. Because the East Coast, actually, they, they had been into Somalia more than we had. Okay. Uh, pulling in with the their, I think they call it a MARG deployment. I think so. And there was a couple guys, a couple brothers that had gotten some, some you know, had done some shooting and, and okay. gotten some killed as well. Yeah. Um, so they handled the East Coast part of it, you handled the West Coast yeah. part of it, and then, and then we moved on and not much happened for a few years. No. And then you get out. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, why'd you get out? Uh, well, you know, the, my wife at the time was not happy that with the amount of time that I was gone and wanted yeah. me, uh, you know, home more. Uh, she was actually, she was pregnant with my son when I deployed to Somalia because I replaced a guy in that platoon who'd gotten in some trouble. Oh, yeah. And so they were on deployment and uh, he got in trouble, got sent home but he was one of their snipers they knew they were going to somalia so it was just a stroke of luck that it happened to be me but they told me at the last minute like right after i left like two days after christmas and found out like three days before that that i was going and then was gone so she's not happy about that no why would you (laughs) and so um you know hey here's the thing uh she wasn't happy with me gone all the time and she wasn't, we weren't happy when we were being home all the time. Didn't make anything better. Yeah. And so I separated, uh, from the Navy, but joined the reserves the same day. Okay. And then, um, we end up going through the divorce. And, uh, as soon as that was kind of wrapped up and, uh, you know, custody and all that stuff was settled, then, then I just did an assessment. I'm like, you know, I was a lot happier when I was in and I came back in the military so I came back on active duty and checked into trade at to the sniper cell. And again, this, I've been so lucky with how my career laid out that, you know, they, they decided to start a sniper cell on the West coast. Yeah. And then that's where I got to go. And I came back in and I came back in August of, of, uh, 2001. No way. So how many years were you out then? Just like a year and a half. Okay. Got it. So I, so when, while you were out. What did you do during that time frame? Besides uh, getting <clears throat> things in order. I, uh, I got my license as a private investigator and I had a little private investigation firm no where way. I was doing litigation support and, uh, in San Diego in, in Orange County and did that for a while and did, did fairly decent at that, but I'm a ter- kind of a terrible businessman, so it wasn't wasn't great. And then uh, then I worked at Lowe's in the garden section for a little while, and no I wasn't making enough money as a private investigator because that's real cyclical. Mm-hmm. And I needed to make my child support. No kidding. So you get out as an E six. Okay. Yep. You come back in also as an E six. Yeah, they were critically undermanned for E sixes, so it was at that time they were like, "Oh, you want to come back in? No problem." Boom. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And then they call it, the, is there like a break in service type thing or is there, you just, was it you out for so such a short amount of time that you just jump back in? I was still current because I stayed in the reserves. Nice. Okay. So I was still drilling. So I was still current. So it was really a pretty easy paperwork shuffle to okay. be able to come back in, especially because the manning was low and all that. Nice. And then you get August, 2001. Yeah. And a month later, in. the planes hit the towers and, and our community has been like off to the races since yeah. then and still now. Yep. No kidding. So when did you make chief? Did you make it over at uh, at trade at trade at? I made chief in two thousand five. Got it. Got it. So you yeah. can, actually, while you were out, I think you came by 
my sniper school. So we were at, uh, at the time it was Kalinga. It's not, not anymore. Yeah. But so middle of California. Um, and I was there in the summer of night. Oh, geez. Going back my first deployment. So summer of 2000, spring of 2000, uh-huh. I think, I think you came to visit out there. Uh, or at Pendleton, somewhere we were doing no, something. No, it, it was up there. Okay. I uh, uh, I had to go up to Sacramento to do to to go up to the stuff to pull some papers for my um, investigator job. Oh, nice. And you know, I'm driving right by Kalinga, and I knew you guys were there, so I just pulled over and nice. came to hang out. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I distinctly remember that. That was yeah. so cool. And once again, the whispers. You know, that's the guy. <laughs> <laughs> so awesome because uh, all of us you know we're essentially one platoon guys at yeah. that point and then we're going to sniper school and you know hearing all the vietnam stories and all that stuff and hearing your story from people and yeah. um you know trying to just soak up all the lessons we possibly can to be the best uh, best snipers we can so if that call comes we're ready but uh and it was that. A, going through the course then when we were using kalinga mm-hmm. and the rifle range there that was like i don't I, I don't think there's a better opportunity out there where you're just immersed. Yeah, you're living on the range. You're yeah. living there in tents. And, yep. uh, you know, I don't know how they, they probably couldn't even get away with doing that today. Just, hey, bring a tent and you're going to sleep on this range. Yeah, bring yeah. some food. I remember I drive back on the weekends to San Diego and I just get this big, my, my wife would make this big pasta thing. And that's what I eat all week. Yeah. I would just eat the same thing like, <laughs> in a cooler. And uh, that was all I ate all week. And then go back and kind of refill and then yeah. come back. But it was awesome. That was a great course. Uh, and we didn't do any stocking out there on my course. We went to um, uh, to Nyland for the sniper for the yeah. stocking part. I think some people might have stocked out there for a while, and then we started getting the what the valley fever yeah. and all that sort of thing. Um, so they shut that place down eventually. But you're right; you're immersed. You're not going anywhere. Yeah, you're living there. Great people out there. Yeah. Too. Oh yeah, that uh, one guy that comes out and does all the the the, the barbecue. Doc Ogard. Yeah. Yeah, Amazing. the vet. He was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a special time to to be in. And then, in September 11th hits yeah. and uh and so i'm i'm deployed uh we do ship boardings uh come back and then i go to ocs and then into afghanistan right after that but um how long did it take you to get back into a platoon once you're at trade at doing the sniper stuff and then get back into the the swing of things uh i so i got back into a platoon in 2005 okay as a platoon chief and then but then you know i was at seal team three my task unit went to to um paycom so i deployed to guam mm-hmm. which you know when there's a war going on and then we're task unit bruiser was one of the other task units at the team and we're hearing in real time you know like hey they just got the first ever carl gustav kill oh, wow. and every time they walk outside the gate their troops in contact and it was it was it was challenging to keep our heads in the game yeah um you know and there was a lot of times that that i had to you know circle everybody up at poolside because like hey guys all of us want to be over there but we can't be we have a mission to do here and you know we're staying in a four-star hotel here in thailand so you don't have that much to complain about let's try to keep our heads in the game but it's tricky because it, it, you know a lot of people think that like oh you're in the seal teams you're going to get to combat and that's yeah. not really the case it a lot of times you can just you can just miss it yeah and we were worried on september 11th being deployed we thought we were so lucky because we were two weeks into deployment when that yeah. happened and you know we know everyone else is thinking they're going to miss it like and here we are almost 20 years later 
uh, still yeah. doing it. Yeah. But you can, I mean, you can go four deployments and go to Guam and go to these other places, go to Colombia, go to North, whatever you're doing and not be in Iraq and not be in Afghanistan just because of the way things, things yep. shuffle. But you're right. Everybody always thinks that just because you're a SEAL or just because you're SF, you went to, uh, you were in these places and that's, but if you stay in for 20, you're, you're going to hit it some point now, I think these, these days. I agree. I, you, you can't chase it. Yeah. But it'll, it, and it'll come to you. Yeah. These days, if you're in, in for, after, after 20 years of sustained combat operations, like you're going to get it. And, uh -huh. and uh, if people that didn't get it the first pump, didn't get their second pump and then got out to try to get it and then yeah. try to do some contracting and then maybe, maybe they hit it, but maybe they stood gate guard somewhere and just yeah. heard it in the distance or whatever. And then, then they come back in, like you're right, chasing it. It's probably not the way to go. Best way to go is to just stay engaged, stay in your platoons, knock it out of the park, no matter where they send you and, mm. uh, and raise that hand if they need somebody to go in like you did yeah. and uh, to go, get after it so yeah. um yeah today you're gonna you're gonna get it for those that are uh that are coming in it, it seems to be that way and, and you know like the sine wave that's the violence levels in iraq it's gone up and down and mm -hmm. there have been times in iraq where it was super quiet like 2009 there wasn't a lot going on there yeah um it all depends it's it all depends crazy. and then it's crazy you know i i certainly didn't expect that like as a command master chief when i deployed in 2016 17 that there would be that much combat but you know of the four platoons that we had in iraq all four of them got combat action ribbons were at the point of friction getting after it we yeah had one of our guys killed um eod chief jj finan and uh it's it's crazy and you don't you know like you think ah that stuff's all over and then then it comes back again yeah you never know, i guess that's why prepared. they call this the long war that's it and it's uh you know our job is to be prepared or was to be prepared yeah. for war um you know and then be prepared for that call when it comes and uh and that's what it's all about um and for those guys that are uh in today it's gotta be tough coming in today because when when you came in when i came in there was a different model and that model was uh, you're going to deploy and there's no war going on. You're going to come back. You're going to do a workup. You're going to deploy again. You'll go to Guam. You'll go to Thailand. You'll go to Europe, whatever it is. Uh, and then September 11th happens and we figured it out together. That's why I think it was so special back then because the families were figuring it out. Every level, everyone was a new guy on September yep. 11th. Um, and you figured it out, whether you've been in for 30 years and you're an admiral or a general yeah. or you're in your first platoon and everyone in between, that model shifted and the family for the families as well and so we had to figure it out but now guys coming in it's a different model now that's expected you're going to come in and uh guys have been doing this now for close to 20 years and that it it just seems i don't know how it would be to come in step into that these days uh and then of course hear from people oh you missed it you should have been here you should have been here last year our last deployment like yeah. that's got to be hard and well yeah like the guys who got in the seal teams right at the end of vietnam yep and missed the last deployment there and then they just got to sit around and listen <laughs> it, you know the good thing about it is like right now all of our leaders have got combat experience yeah all of them do which wasn't at the higher levels um which wasn't the case initially like yeah. you just said and i think one of the strengths of naval special warfare and why we've done good at everything that we've been kind of tasked with is doctrinally we're not tied down and we're not so rigid that we can't improve yeah. you know we'll we'll sit down and go hey what's a better way to do this and then actually adjust how we're doing things to adjust with how the tactics are changing on the battlefield and yeah. you know just in the time we were in you you saw radical changes in the tactics that we use to do 
close quarters battle, mm-hmm. which that's where we're clearing buildings and, and things like that. And they're like, hey, this this way we were doing it, this doesn't apply to every situation. Let's develop new ways to do it and new tactics. And we're able to let go of something and try something new a lot quicker, mm-hmm. um, I think, than other organizations. And that's the yeah. key to, to, to why we're so, one of the reasons why I think we're so successful. Yeah, without a doubt, our ability to adapt probably quicker than some other organizations that are a little more bureaucratic. I mean, we're still bureaucratic. It still yeah. takes a little while, but we've, uh, uh, we've adapted very well. I think that's de- what our main strength since September 11th is our mm-hmm. uh, ability to, uh, to have, have done that and continue to do that. That's the, that's the main thing. Of course we mess up and, uh, and what's important there is, uh, I think is to, to share that with everyone, yeah. not try to hide it, not try mm-hmm. to sweep it under the rug, but, uh, that's what you owe the guys. If you, especially if you lost guys, that's what you yeah. owe them and their families, uh, is that so it doesn't happen again. And people learn from those, uh, those mistakes, learn from those failures and we're a stronger organization going forward. Um, but, uh, that's 100% why the SEAL teams have, uh, have been able to do what we've done since September 11th. Yeah, when I when I was deployed to Afghanistan, which was a classic land warfare fight there, right? Um, every op, I would come back and talk, send an email to the guy who was running our land warfare training, which was the most direct, yeah. di- directly applicable to what we were doing over there. And hey, here here's what happened. Here's how we're. Um, able to make sure we know who's who out in the battlefield so we're not you know shooting each other doing any of that and then they're taking that and putting it into practice in real time amazing yeah perfect yeah no absolutely and the training got good yeah especially when jocko took over oh yeah amazing uh i had to do two of my uh pre-deployment workups with him uh lead uh, running the training detachment and uh those were the the two best workups that i ever went through i learned the most from those two workups uh-huh. um and wait so we, when did you get out then not long ago yeah i retired last year last year but i i was running so when i came back from afghanistan i was like i want land warfare nice and so i came in there i remember when you guys came through and you were the tu commander yeah um coming through out there and you guys did great oh, it was a lot of fun yeah that was great yeah i mean had an amazing sea of course who's yeah. still still in um so i just call him matt h when i thank him for things but yeah it was great uh great being with with him um and we had some good we had some solid chiefs oh my gosh yeah. dave h uh yeah. so we had some guys I, I had i was very lucky that i was surrounded by some really good people you that. had a great crew yeah you're and they were all giants yeah, oh my dudes. gosh <laughs> which makes Thinking it of not- your two chiefs and your sea were giants and i i so so who gets put down of course these well, gigantic guys of course. carrying them for and miles I, I i remember <laughs> Blow them in putting place. matt down with the <laughs> god gun Mm-hmm. And chuckling to myself and uh, hearing everyone scream, man down. <laughs> and guys are running. Who is it? It's senior chief. And then whoo, <laughs> exactly. everybody slows oh, my down. security <laughs> or something. You know? like, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Blow them in place. Yeah. yeah. No, crazy. <laughs> but that's, yeah, typically that's the person that goes down as the largest guy because it's going to, uh, it gives you a problem to deal with. Uh huh. <laughs> and well, you got to train to the worst case scenario. That's otherwise, right. you're not going to learn from it. And that's, you know, when I went through as a, a, a troop SEA out there, um, and that's the senior enlisted advisor for the, the our task unit, we didn't, we had a pretty significant blue on blue. Yeah. And uh, uh, we had an entire fire team wipe out our sniper element 
because I, think I know we, exactly where that takes place. Uh, there's a one place out in Nyland that that happens more often than not. Yeah, um, and and it's and well, we just didn't we weren't communicating where everybody was. Yeah. We didn't have a way to, to and we developed some tactic techniques and procedures after that because you know I got a safety violation. I never got a safety violation in my career, mm-hmm. and so having to go sit across the table from Jocko mm-hmm. and sign a safety violation was horrible. Yeah. And then after I sign it, he says, I'm glad this happened to you. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. And it, well, he followed it up with that. He said, I'm, I'm glad this happened to you because this happened to me for real in combat. And I want it to happen to you in training. So it doesn't happen there. Yeah. And he was absolutely right because he could have in our pre-brief said, Hey, your, your methods here are a little weak. And we might have gotten away with not having a shooting one of our own guys, yeah. but then we really wouldn't learn the lesson hard enough. Yeah. And because I learned that lesson that hard, because I failed in training, he let us fail. Yeah. I was maniacal about knowing where everybody was. And on that deployment we did to Afghanistan, there's like two times where we came like a razor's edge away from killing our partner force Yeah. because they had moved somewhere and then didn't tell us we're like right. hey we got movement over here and where are you guys and they said they, they i mean we it wouldn't have been they said they didn't even move yeah when we asked and then they and i'm like Dude, this is too sketchy don't yeah. shoot and then it turns out that oh, oh wait yeah some of our guys moved so saved us because that training was that hard we did yeah. we did as well as we did yeah, that was um, legit training. Yeah. And having that, uh, whatever we call that system made by Saab or whatever that thing was, where the person's walking with the computer and you're putting people down and wounding people and putting people's guns down. Like, that was amazing yeah. training. Funneling people where you need them to go. Like, that was... Laser I mean, tag I, system you, on steroids. Yeah. And then the debrief Incredible. on it. Oh, and you watch it up there on the screen. You couldn't get a debrief because your, your harness is coded to your rifle, which is... GPS uploaded all the time. So it, every time you shoot your rifle, it knows, you know, you're shooting blanks, of course, and it's firing a laser, but it records whether you got a hit or miss, who you hit or miss, yeah. and it tracks everywhere you went. So they could you know, bring in the classrooms, put it on the big screen and say, hey, oh, yeah. here's what happened right here. Keeps everybody honest, too. It, I remember back in the day with uh, without that. Yeah. Oh, no, that wasn't me because it's dark. There's yeah. things going off. Oh, there's Targets aren't popping up like they are now and actually having those flashes and having yeah. that smoke, which is amazing. It was just cardboard targets that you walked by and you pretend you didn't see until someone threw that flash crash from trade at or whatever. Yeah. And then, boom, then you drop and do it. But now uh, you see yourself on the screen. Oh, wow, I did that. Uh, and there's no saying, oh, it wasn't me. Uh, your name's attached <laughs> to the GPS that shows exactly what happened. Yeah. Such a great, such a valuable tool. And you know, if you played cowboys and Indians with when you were a kid, when we did do blanks, it always degenerated into the same arguments. I shot you first. Right. No, you didn't. I killed you. <laughs> um, yep. No, it's all right there. It's all done. There's no, there's uh, no, there's no arguing with it. It was good stuff. Yeah, that was amazing. Uh, that that training was incredible. I wonder if the rest of the military does. I don't know if uh, other people use that. I'm sure SF and you know different people do, but military in general, like to, I don't know if huge. You know, companies of Marines do that, and more conventional forces use it. But uh, I it's think amazing. they use them uh, at the national training centers. Okay, but it's for like armor and things okay. like that. Uh, Not for small, smaller elements. But I, but you know, honestly, I don't know. Yeah. I, I would hope that they do because it's such a great training yeah. aid. I can't imagine not having that in today's day and age. No. It's, it's incredible. Um, so you get out, 
less than a year ago. Uh-huh. Did you know what you were going to do when you made that transition? Did you? Yeah, I uh, uh, had like a year's notice that that um, I you know I I had a spot in Echelon Front. Nice. And that's and are you retiring out of uh, what command? Uh, I was the training detachment master chief. Okay. So my my career laid out perfectly because when I finished up with my command master chief tour at seal team five, I only had two years left. So the, I, I was able to get the training detachment because basically on my twilight tour, mm-hmm. otherwise they're going to give you a bigger job with more responsibility. And unfortunately those jobs, they're rough. You're just going to meetings and answering emails Brutal. and, uh, it's, it's not that rewarding, but you know, when you're at training detachment, you're still able to go out and mm-hmm. see the guys and go in the field. Um, and passing lessons along. I mean, passing lessons yeah. along and getting to mentor the younger guys and, yeah. and, and, uh, help them, them along. So it's, it was rewarding. I, I was really lucky that, it, yeah. that that's how it laid out because it was a great place to kind of wrap up my, uh, career in the Navy. Got it. Got it. And then, uh, and you knew you were going to Teshlon front. Uh-huh. Nice. And, uh, yeah. and so how does, how's that working out? Like you can, you're busy. I know you're busy yeah. and that can, now you're on social media. Yep. And so I track you a little <laughs> bit there and I see what you're doing running around. And, uh, I love watching what you guys are doing up in uh, where you live and yeah. all the outdoor stuff. And it's, uh, it's so cool. So inspiring, uh, to see you doing that and make a successful transition. Cause a lot of guys don't, a lot of guys yeah. have a hard time letting go of that past. And it seems like, uh, like you have, have uh moved forward you're focused forward you're doing some awesome stuff and so how's it how's it been being being out it's it's fantastic yeah. i mean the the first thing is is like you know now uh i can turn my cell phone off at night mm-hmm. before and i'd have to be like on my nightstand um and then when it, it goes off let's say well, at 10 30 at night on a saturday night midnight on a saturday night yeah, or I'm friday like, night great like, exactly it's Somebody's not gonna be good jail. news yeah it's not good news yeah so now when my phone rings late i'm like oh what who's calling with good news <laughs> like it's great it's so exactly. different i love it uh yeah. it's totally different than than being in i mean every time that phone would ring when i was at home I, my heart would just go oh, what uh-huh. is it? Mm-hmm. especially and always school. like on a three-day weekend so now that's spoiled because you gotta go down yeah. haul someone out or you know worse yet it could be even worse you know it's like worse. someone's hurt mm-hmm. and uh yeah that's that's nice it's nice to be able to focus more on my family it's it's really nice you know with Esch- to have the opportunity to work with echelon front because we you know teach leadership and help companies solve problems through leadership and uh all of the principles that we teach we can back up with stories from the real world which which actually helps people receive the message better and it's so it's a it's a good positive it's a positive thing because we're helping people get better yeah and how is the the training for that like so you get out and uh what what did uh what did jocko or lay for how did that work to as far as to get you where you needed to be as far as the what you're putting out uh the speaking side of it or do they just throw you into the fire how did that work kind of combination of both i mean honestly i've been public speaking right for years did you do any of the actual public speaking courses in the teams uh well, you know, they have I, that guy, they had that guy that would come out every now and again. I didn't ever I did, did it, but I didn't do his, but I did like, you know, it, you, you teach a class and another instructor would evaluate you. I went to, to both the, the group paced instructor course and then the high risk training instructor course. Okay. And so standing in front of a classroom, talking to 50, 60, hundred people, that's what I was doing. Right. And what's more, 
you know, over my last two years, that's really the focus of what I was trying to pass on to other guys were leadership principles. Mm. Um, extreme ownership came out right when I promoted out of the tactical level leadership and started to get an executive levels of leadership when I became an ops master chief okay. at a team waiting to fleet up to become a command master chief. Uh-huh. So, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, Jocko and Leif wrote a book. I'm going to, I absorbed it right away. Yep. And then I was able to like, first of all, put a words and a framework to things that I was doing right, understand things I was doing incorrectly, and then put the stuff in practice in real time and see it work. Yeah. And instead of just talking about, oh, hey, here's, here's cover and move, which is teamwork. I was actually going, oh, okay, I'm going to work hard on this. I'm going to develop relationships with everybody that I'm working with and saw the benefits of that. Yeah. Then he's, you know, his podcast starts. Yeah. I started listening to the podcast really, really like when he was on podcast six right. and because of the commute that I had, you know, I was caught up in two weeks and then haven't missed one since. And those have all been great adjustments to my leadership. So I had a good fundamental working knowledge of right. the principles of extreme ownership going into it. Then they gave me a, a framework for what we talk about when we give a keynote or a mm-hmm. workshop. And then I just populated that with some of my own personal stories Got it. and went forward. And then I'll do, um, I worked with Jocko and Leif where they, you know, I'll speak for, for them, which is, that's the scariest, the scariest thing that I've done in a while is sitting in a hotel room in front of Jocko and Leif oh, man. briefing them. You know, it's like, I'd rather go out and talk to a thousand people and I'm all nervous and stuttering. And, uh, um, yeah, so it's been, it's been good and they've been super helpful and supportive as has I've been all the other instructors. So I leave it lean on pretty heavily. That's awesome. Yeah. Jock is one of the scariest people I've ever, I've ever engaged with. And, uh, every time I have engaged, I do something with him, I walk away a better, better for it. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. But the other, even today, like we know each other now, I've been on the podcast. He's been amazing to me. Yeah. Uh, we, I texted him two days ago and, uh, but I was still nervous. Like, yeah. I'm like, I, <laughs> I'm like, uh, but he got right back to me. I, I was, I asked him for a blurb for my, uh, my third novel and, uh-huh. uh, he got right back and said, let's do it. I'm like, oh that's man, it's awesome. so cool. Yeah, yeah. Just so cool. But I'm still nervous sending the text. And I tell my wife, uh-huh. I'm like, why am I, I shouldn't be nervous sending the text to this guy? <laughs> but he's yelling at me every Monday, telling me to get up at four. Like, ah. uh, but no, he's, he's been awesome to me uh, yeah. as we transitioned and so cool of him to, to have, uh, have me on the podcast and all that sort of thing. So he's, uh, and he's doing such good work for so many people. Like that platform is growing. It's all positive. It's all helping people with their lives, achieve their goals. You know, it's just, it's incredible what he's, what he's done. Since he's yeah, I out. mean, he genuinely cares about yeah. seeing everybody get better. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. And, and it's just, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, the, the early morning wake up's a little, a little much. Yeah. It's not <laughs> working for me either. <laughs> but it's so great. It's yeah. so great. Awesome, man. So, um, so how can people find you? Is your, is your, uh, the Instagram stuff, is it all, um, is it public and all that stuff? Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah. I've got everything public. I figure, you know, if I'm making my living in, in the public now, right. it'd be ridiculous for me to have everything private. So how is that by the way? How is, uh, like doing, cause it was weird for me to, to have ever never having done, not even having a Facebook account, not knowing anything about that sort of thing. And then to then have to do it because essentially like that's my storefront. Mm-hmm. If, I had a, if I had a general store in some small town America and someone yeah. came in and wanted directions, I, that's that's how I look at social media. Like I'm going to uh, 
treat people the same way I would in person if they came into my small yeah. town general store. Um, but how's it, how's it been for you with sharing so that sort of thing? It's been amazing. Yeah. Uh, I, I'll share period, you know, periodically like once a week or once every two weeks, I'll, I'll show like a photo that I have from a different deployment, yeah. which you weren't allowed to do before. Um, mm -hmm. you know, while you were in, you couldn't do it, but, uh, I have met so many awesome people through nice. like people, a lot of say there's a negative aspects to social media. Of course, there's so many positive aspects cause I've met a whole bunch of people across the country and now the world that, um, that I'm learning from, nice. you know, that, that like, especially super interested in, in the outdoors and homesteading. And, and I found these other people that are, that are like taking that to the next level. Nice. Uh, and that, that aspect of it has, has been, it, it's fantastic. And, and I agree. It's the same thing. It's like, Hey, this is how I'm representing, you know, what, what, what echelon fronts pushing forward, what, I, what I believe in, mm -hmm. um, out there. And, and so it's good. And it's, it's my wife, Iris is, uh, like uh, hers is great. She's hers is way better than mine. I, I, <laughs> I, I honestly, I, I post all the time. Hey, you, you know, post her stuff repost her stuff or if you want to see something good follow her because yeah. she's actually putting better stuff out there i i think um i'm at uh jason.n.gardner on instagram and she's at all the wild places which hit it's that awesome. up as well it's it's really good yeah uh, very thoughtful post it's amazing and you know we're taking all this stuff and we're we have young kids my daughter's nine son seven and we spend a lot of time thinking about how we can be better parents mm -hmm. um and you share that and better people and better stewards of the environment and all that stuff and you know that's that's another great thing about okay podcast for instance like i gotta be honest with you before I, I wasn't really that environmentally concerned about a lot of stuff and then you know following Steve Rynell and the meat eater. Yeah. That's completely changed the game for me. And it's something that I'm like, I was, I'm kind of a dummy for not paying attention to conservation and being aware of, of my impact on the environment. You know, yeah. maybe I don't want to sp spray a bunch of roundup all over my yard. I'll know. Let's go weed stuff by hand. Yeah. Which is a, you know, it's free exercise for me anyway. Yeah. And that's and the just, kids. yeah. And the kids. And so that's, you know, one of these examples of how these, all these new media formats it's it's i'm really excited about the times we're living in sure awesome. they're a little crazy but for the general overall i think we're moving in a positive direction awesome yeah. awesome i love it i love it but uh awesome so we have a place to find you and yep. echelon front of course there's an echelon yeah, they're easy to find. Yep. Echelonfront.com. Uh, yep. And then Jocko's stuff. He has like seven or eight different, it seems like, uh, uh, websites for different, different things. The yeah. Jocko Live, Echelon Front podcast, all these, uh, uh, Origin, uh, Origin all Maine. that stuff. Yep. All that great all stuff. All made in America. That's it. Yeah. Bringing manufacturing back, baby. There we go. That's yeah. it. Yep. So, uh, see so a lot of great stuff going on. It is awesome to uh to catch up with you i'm so glad we got to see each other here so yeah. for those that are watching uh and can see what's outside the window here we're in dc at something called what suits and spooks is that suits what this thing spooks is called is the event yeah and it's uh, like attached to the spy museum and there's a bunch of uh i don't know what you call everybody that's here like intel type people cybersecurity people um, yeah it seems something. to be fairly towards the mostly cyber yeah um and uh tech yeah 
So that's interesting to me to to talk to some of those people, especially since uh, I've divorced myself from those worlds, uh, uh, leaving the military and Mm -hmm. living out in the, in the mountains and, and doing all that stuff to come here to the epicenter of the bureaucracy that is the uh, United States uh, defense establishment is, uh, is pretty interesting. So, uh, so we're here doing this and then hopefully we can link up at uh, some other point here in the future, maybe get out hunting or something. Absolutely. Nice. Count awesome. me in. Awesome, brother. <laughs> awesome. Well, hey, thank you for doing this. And uh, yeah, let's uh, let's get outdoors soon. Awesome. Thanks, awesome, Jack. Brother. Thanks, brother. All right. Awesome. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. For more on Jason Gardner, follow him on Instagram at jason.n.gardner and follow along on Echelon Front as well to see everything that they have going on out there. If you liked our conversation, please leave a five-star rating and review to help counter those big tech algorithms. And follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels. You can go and pre-order In the Blood right now. It's coming out this spring. That's the fifth novel in the James Reese series. Other than that, take care out there. Be safe. Keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm-hmm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Exactly, Which box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or <laughs> right, right. An How, uh, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm-hmm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.